Welcome to Catch the Fire London's podcast. We pray that you will be radically transformed as you listen to this message. Thank you, Father, for your son, Minister Stuart. Father, Lord, in Jesus' name, except, Lord, you build a house, the labor, but the labor in vain. So, Lord, this morning, he humbles himself before you and asks Holy Spirit for fresh input, for fresh all of your presence, all of your word, all of revelation. Lord, pour it upon your servant in Jesus' name. Lord, even though he has studied, but Lord, he looks up to you, Jesus, author of his faith, the Lord pour your living word through his veins, through his arteries, so the people, Father, will hear the words of life. And the words of life, as it comes, Father God, will transform every heart, will bring forth miracles of salvation, will bring forth not just healing our bodies and mind, but Lord, will make us in the name of Jesus as tools in your hand to be deployed for the end time harvest. Thank you, Holy Spirit, as you minister, Lord, we thank you for the power of God will be released to do what you intended to do this morning. So thank you for your word that we plant in our heart and enrich us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. We, we will continue worship later and ministry time, etc., but we felt it important to have the word. Thank you very much. Um, we've had to rearrange things a bit because I've got to speak somewhere else this afternoon. So I'm going to be dashing off and uh, just leaving you in the fair care of the Holy Spirit. and Let him do what he wants to do. Um, I was asked by my daughter-in-law uh, <laughs> to uh, preach this morning on Cana and uh, the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. And uh, she gave me the title, Jesus Shows Us What the Kingdom of God is Like. So, we're going to read from God's Word first, from John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonially washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now this the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him May God bless his word to us this morning. 
Returning home one evening, a husband found his new bride in tears. Between sobs, he learned that something terrible had happened. Darling, she said, the first meat pie I ever baked, and the cat ate it. That's all right, love, he consoled her. I'll get you another cat tomorrow. Now, weddings and marriage and uh, all sorts of... Uh, interesting things we're looking at uh, where this happened this happened in Kafia Kana uh, which you'll know as Cana <laughs> and Cana uh, Baptist Church is somewhere that I have visited many times I have preached there and it's next door to the Franciscan Wedding Church which is the church that was built to remember this instance of the turning of the water into wine the Baptist pastor uh, knows the Franciscan priest well, and I've been down into the cellar of the wedding church to see uh, some of those ancient stone jars, about this big, <laughs> and uh, that, um, you know, that appear here. And of course, uh, there was inevitably a wedding going on, when I was last there, <laughs> upstairs while I was downstairs. Um, now, who would you regard as the most important person at a wedding? The parents of the bride and groom? The best man? The preacher? Well, probably not. Usually it is the bride and groom. Although, let's face it, some families make a controversy about that as parents and the couple argue about whether those as what pays should control those as what comes. At Cana, there was one there who we read about in the previous chapter had made the whole of creation. God turned up to this wedding. Now, there are those who want to label Jesus as a killjoy. I think I told you last time I was here about the Catholic priest who went up to um, Groucho Marx and said, I want to thank you for all the joy that you've put into the world. And Groucho replied, and I want to thank you for all the joy you've taken out of it. Which is the way the world sees the church, isn't it? The way the world sees Jesus, ultimately, that he's always got a downer on everything. I've spent some of my time as a minister at bedsides, speaking with those who are sick, those who are dying. I did so this week, and I'll be taking a funeral this coming week. But Jesus is there for those times, but he's also there for the good times. He's there for the times when we're joyful. He's there for the times when we're laughing. And I always imagine Jesus, he spent a lot of time sitting around with the disciples having meals. And I don't think they were always boring, somber occasions, you know? I think... Well, the, the whole Jewish tradition is full of festivals and feasts and enjoyment. 
And it would have been no less true of Jesus and his disciples. Because Jesus is there for the dinner parties as well. We call upon him for our pains, but he's also there for our wholeness, our joys. He said, I have come that they might have life and have it in all its fullness. Now, I don't know how much of fullness you know this morning. Whether you've come along this morning feeling full of joy or whether you've come along burdened by stuff that's been going on recently. Well, let's look at this wedding. Let's look at this wedding as if Jesus hadn't been there. They ran out of wine. Now, if that sounds serious to some of you, maybe not so serious to others, but for some of you, running out of wine at a wedding, that's bad news, isn't it? Well, it's especially so in a Jewish wedding, because a Jewish wedding could go on for a long time. The ceremony would be in the evening after a feast. After the ceremony, it would be dark, and the couple would be conducted to their new home through the streets with the light of flaming torches and a canopy over their heads. They were taken on as long a road as possible so that as many people as possible would have the opportunity to wish them well. A bit like Nelson Mandela walking through the streets and people would come out to greet him. They would come out to greet this couple. They would then be put into their new home where they would be crowned king and queen for a week and would be expected to host all the people who came to see them. So they didn't just need a bit of wine for the wedding feast. They could do with quite a bit of wine for the coming week. And we're still on day one, and the wine has run out. You know, when you live in a world of comparative poverty, a weddings are an even bigger thing for the whole community. We're so used to big communities where a couple can be getting married and most of the community know nothing about it. But when you're in a poor community, everybody knows what's going on. Everybody's involved. Everybody's there. So it was a real week of joy and festivity in contrast to what life's like for the rest of the time. And it's still like that in many cultures today. In Kenya, I saw the whole church choir turning out to escort the bride to the church with singing and then escort the bride and groom onto their marital home. It was great fun. Everything in the village came to a stop. In Romania, they have, I don't know they still do this, they certainly used to do it. I brought this with me just as a visual aid. Don't know about you, I like visual aids. Um, does anyone know what this is? Yeah? Yeah, at the back they know what this is. <laughs> okay, this is basically a wine bottle. And when you're, somebody in your family's getting married, you'd tie that to your horse, and you'd go around, and anybody who was being invited to the wedding would be given a drink from the bottle. So if someone turned up and gave you a drink of wine from this bottle, you've been invited to the wedding. So off you would toddle and go to... Well, it saved an awful lot of money on going to the stationers and getting those things printed. 
different things in different places. In South Africa, I saw parents slaughtering and cooking a whole goat or a cow outside the house to feed all the people who would turn up because it's such a big thing in the village and everybody would turn up to be part of the celebration. Because hospitality is very important. You have to have food and drink. You have to provide the food and the drink. You know, in the Middle East, hospitality is a sacred duty. Failure would be a terrible shame for the bride and groom. They would be humiliated and it's still the feast, and they've still got a whole week of hospitality to get through, and the wine runs out, here is a couple facing humiliation. What an awful start to their married life. Can you see how bad news this is? How low everything is for them? But it is not a wedding without Jesus. That's what it could have been if Jesus hadn't been there. But Jesus was there. In the house were six stone water jars, each holding about 100 litres, or 20 gallons in old money. That's a lot, isn't it? Now that water was there for washing, both of feet on arrival after travelling on the dusty road in sandals, and then for washing hands before and during the meal. Jesus made sure that they were filled right up. So this is in excess of 600 litres of wine. More than 800 bottles of the stuff. And it wasn't just plonk. But wine, which the head waiter described as the best. This was Pope's Newcastle. Sorry, for those who don't realise that, that's Chateau du Pape. Okay. This was the really good stuff. This was not Lidl's cooking wine. Now that was some wedding present. It was certainly more than enough to see them through the week of entertaining guests and lay down a decent cellar. Without Jesus, this event would have been a humiliating disaster. It would have all ended in tears. But with Jesus, it turned into something completely different. An occasion of joy and festivity. You know, in the last century, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and I'm sure some of you have read some of his books, he was asked what he thought to be the root cause of Russia's troubles. He said, more than half a century ago, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that have befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today 
to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people. I could not have put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And it's still the case. It's still the case for Russia. The Orthodox Church in Russia is still not speaking out against Putin and what's going on in Ukraine. Because they think Putin is somehow on their side. They've made one criticism recently, which I won't go into, but it's a load of twaddle <laughs> in terms of what they've said. But what about our country? What about where we live? What is going on in our country at the moment? Are things out of control? Do we need to tell God that we have a problem? Did the pandemic come as a surprise to him? Of course not. Does the constant change of political leadership within our government come as a surprise to God? Of course not. He knows. We need to pray for our nation and our community. But maybe things are happening that actually are an answer to prayer when we look at what's going on in this country at the moment. Somebody put it this way, the gods of the nation are being humiliated by God today in answer to prayer. Let me say that again. The gods of the nation, our nation, are being humiliated by God today in answer to prayer. God has the answer, but the nation has yet to come to the point when its people will ask him to get involved again. John Wesley wrote about the cyclical pattern of revival, which is something that we see in the Old Testament as well. A nation turns to God when in great need. God raises them up. Things get better. People start to live better, to work better, to care for each other better. <laughs> and then they get to the point where they become proud. And they don't think they need God anymore. They get to the top of the cycle. And then, because they think they don't need God anymore, they turn from God. And then things start to go downhill. And as it goes downhill, the state of a nation gets worse. Morally, it gets bankrupt. Prosperity-wise, it gets worse. Until it gets to the point where a nation is ready to start turning back to God again. Can you see that pattern? You can see it in our history. It's what John Wesley was talking about. You can see it in the Old Testament as well. Read the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and then they turned back to God. You know, it's there, this cyclical pattern of how God is at work. At the time of Wesley, it was reckoned that every other house in London was a gin house. So much so that Christian brewers, sorry, that Christians started breweries 
to get people to drink beer to get them off of the gin. The royal balls, the royal dances, had the invitation, come and enjoy good food, good wine, and another man's wife. That was where the nation was at when the Wesleyan, what we call the Wesleyan revival started. Aren't we there again today? When we look at our government, when we look at our nation, when we look at the town that we live in, we need the Holy Spirit to work afresh. So at Cana, things were at rock bottom for this couple on what should have been the happiest day of their life. Humiliation, great need. And here at Cana, it started with Mary. She, for whatever reason, was among the first to realize that there's a problem. She approaches Jesus to do something about it, as his mother. His response reveals that a change has to happen. For if his time has come, then all relationships with him have to change. Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. She responds as a believer and her faith is honoured. Brothers and sisters, how do you approach Jesus? Do you approach him in faith, believing who he is? So many people want God to answer their prayers. Yeah? I've got neighbours who every time anything goes wrong, they come over to us and ask us to pray because they presume we've got a hotline to heaven. They imagine that God is going to be their sugar daddy. They've got a problem, they come over, will you pray for? Will you pray, will you pray for this? And then God answers the prayers. But they don't come back and say, well, on one occasion they did. The son of the family would have been going to prison. And God saved him. But the family hadn't been back. He's been back and said, thank you. Do we think God is just a sugar daddy? Do we think God is just there when we've got a problem, that he can solve the problem? Do we think God is just a friend? You know, I can remember the evangelisms of the 60s and the 70s when the whole thing was about, yeah, come and know Jesus. He'll be your best friend ever. He'll be your buddy. That's a load. That's not right. The New Testament says you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and you get him as your Savior. Yeah, story of uh, Lord Nelson when uh, he defeated uh, the French fleet and the admiral of the fleet came on board. And as he walked across the, the foredeck of the ship with his hand outstretched, Lord Nelson turned his back on him. He said, your hand first, sir. No, he didn't. He said, your sword first, sir. Then your hand. 
There has to be that act of surrender. And as we come to Jesus, we have to come and acknowledge him as Lord. And then we get him as Savior. We do not come to him and think he's just going to be our best buddy and do everything nice for us. He's Lord. He is God. When we come to him in a right relationship, we see things happen. Too many people think he's just there to be their best buddy. He's Jesus. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You see, without that right relationship, we're not going to see stuff happen. In Psalm 66, it says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. So we come to God. The humiliation of the couple was prevented by the humility of Mary. She went from being the mother of Jesus to being a believer in Jesus. And we have to make that transition as well. Not from being the mother of Jesus. Hey, <laughs> we have to know him for who he is. So we see then that her request is followed by implicit obedience. Prayers without a willingness to obey is rather vacant. When we pray, so often our Father expects us to be prepared to be part of the answer. When we pray, God expects us to be part of the answer. In King, 2 Kings 4, there's the story of the widow's oil. She is told to collect jars and fill them with oil. And they miraculously get filled until every jar is filled. The miracle happens as she obeys. As she does what she's told to do, the miracle happens. The feeding of the 5,000, the miracle happens as the disciples obey and distribute the bread and the wine. In Cana, the miracle happens when Mary and subsequently the servants obey. Are you prepared to be obedient and be part of God's answer to your prayers? Can we find ourselves praying for revival but want others to tell our neighbours about Jesus? Do we find ourselves praying for healing but expect others to lay hands on the sick. We can pray for the needs of others, but expect someone else to do something about it. We need to rethink. If I'm going to pray for this, what if God wants me to be part of the answer? Will I go? and speak will I go and lay hands on will I go and share a word of knowledge with this person or do I expect God to just find someone else to do it instead of me being part of the answer 2 Corinthians 4 6 to 10 for God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus 
but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We're just jars of clay, folks. It's all about God. But he wants us to be jars of clay that can be used that are prepared to be in the right place at the right time. I was walking down the corridor late one night at a conference centre in England and I heard two men speaking in Romanian. So I bid them, Noptibuna, good night, as I went past. And um, which rather surprised them, a bit like you said about Nelson Mandela was surprised. <laughs> they were surprised. And uh, they wanted to stop their conversation to find out who it was who had spoken to them in Romanian. And uh, one of these two men turned out to be Paul Negrut. And uh, Paul Negrut was then president of the Romanian Evangelical Alliance. And he tells a story of a man who spent 17 years in communist prisons for his faith. One evening, Paul went to see him and arrived just after the secret police had left. There was blood all over the man's face, and Paul was filled with anger. But his friend said, We are not here to complain, Paul. We are here to praise our Lord. Let's pray. So they knelt down together, and Paul was so angry that he didn't really know what to pray. But his friend, more than made up for that. He prayed for the secret police, for the Communist Party, for those who had beaten him up. He asked God's forgiveness for them, God's blessing upon them, and God's love to be poured out upon their families. Paul Negrut says, I never heard somebody praying for his enemies with such love as that man. Would you have been there with him? Would you have been praying for your enemies like that who beat you up? After they had prayed, his friend said that the secret police came twice every week to torture him. And he told them that he loved them. One guy said to him, Sir, if we see each other before the throne of judgment, and if you are eventually lost, I want you to know that it is not because I hate you. It will be because you have rejected Jesus' love and my love. Sometime later, that policeman came back to the house on his own. This time, it wasn't to beat the man up. It was to say that he had become a Christian. He said, your love melted my heart. And through your love, I saw Jesus. And I came to know Jesus. Hmm. He explained that he discovered now that he had cancer. And he only had a few more weeks to live. He came to ask forgiveness. 
he came to pray with the man he had tortured. Now that's the wine of the kingdom, isn't it? Clay jars, that's all we've got to offer. God provides the wine. (laughs) Clay jars is all we've got to offer. Jesus takes these everyday jars and their potential is transformed as their contents are changed. And that's what he does for us. He changes the contents of our lives so that we become Chateau Neuf du Pap, not Little's cooking wine. (laughs) So that our lives become a blessing to other people. Jesus turned the water into wine. Somebody has said the church today does something even more amazing. They change wine into water. (laughs) We have to make sure we're not doing the wrong way around, don't we? The new life of Jesus gets turned into an insipid religion that appeals to far too few people, understandably. Now, this nation has a Christian heritage that has enriched it so much. Something we have allowed the politicians to forget. Something which is forgotten or ignored by the aggressive humanism that is rampant today and is behind so much human um, political correctness and wokeness. Why do we have freedom of conscience and freedom of speech in the Western world? Because of Christianity. Because Thomas Helwes went to prison because he defied the king and told the king that he had every right to govern over our secular world, but he had no right over our conscience. That resulted in freedom of conscience, which has resulted in freedom of speech. Why do we have a health service free for all? Because of Christians who've gone before us. Why do we have workers' rights? Well, if you don't know your history, you need to check that one out and find out about the the martyrs who started the trade union movement. Why do we have education for all? Because of our Christian heritage. Why was slavery brought to an end in the empire? Why do we have a parliamentary democracy? You know, I was at Westminster when the previous Pope came over here and he spoke to the houses, both houses uh, in uh, Stevens Hall uh, at Westminster and told our governments, all parties, Lords and House of Commons, the only reason you have got a liberal democracy, the only reason you're here in Westminster today is because of Christianity. So why as Christians do we put up with a world telling us that Christianity is old-fashioned, nothing to do with us, it's boring, when it's the very root of who we are as a nation? And it's time Christians stood up and reminded people that we are here because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. You know, Christian marriage is a, building, is a building block of our society. Husbands and wives. And now the government have changed the meaning to have male wives and female husbands. And many youngsters are being encouraged to be neither with pronouns of they. 
how easily we ditch our Christian heritage. How easily wine gets turned into water because Christians haven't been standing up and speaking out. I'm tired of hearing atheists say that religion causes all the wars and suffering in the world. Have you ever heard people saying that? Let me tell you the facts. Do they, have they not understood the 20th century history? Have they not heard of Lenin, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler? Hundreds of millions of people died because of humanist ideologies and continue to suffer from repressive regimes into the 21st century. And for those of you who want such things as you know, actual figures, the 20th century has seen 180 million people murdered. Here's the top five killers of the 20th century. World War I, 15 million people. The Russian Civil War, 9 million people. Stalin's purges, 25 million. World War II, 50 million. Mao Zedong, the Cultural Revolution in China, 50 million people. And that's only the top five from the last century. And what about the deaths caused by religion? The first thing you'll notice is how far back you have to go to hit significant figures. All the Crusades, less than a million deaths. Christian, non-Christian, Muslim. The Inquisition, less than a third of a million people. The Salem Witch Trials, 19 deaths. Okay, can you see where the scales are in this? It's not Christianity or even religion that causes the problems. Our recent history has shown that it's the rejection of God that causes the problems. So yes, we do have some bad things in our religious history, and we confess it. But that's nothing to what taking God out of the picture has produced for mankind, for humankind. Now today, Christians in this country are still leading the way. In working with the elderly, the youth, the children, in working with AIDS sufferers, the three main groups working to stop slavery, which has re-emerged in these shores, are, surprise, surprise, Christians. Stop the traffic, hope for justice, and the Salvation Army. A while ago, I was at a meeting in Kent um, with Christian leaders wanting to stop developers getting away with building communities that aren't communities. Rows of houses with no shops, pubs, schools, churches, or community centres. The same day, I was then at a meeting with the police and church leaders and representatives in Sussex, with street pastors, Sussex pathways, street lighters, stop the traffic. You see, who's trying to be salt in society and make it a better place? God's people, because they want the wine of the kingdom in our communities. We must stop believing the lies that the media present to people over and over again without a Christian voice being heard. You know, you know Dan. <laughs> Another one of my sons and his wife are in the Salvation Army. 
And for a long time, they were on call so that if a girl was being trafficked into the sex industry and was trying to get out, they were on call to go and pick her up and take her to a safe house. Because Christians are doing something. I could go on and on. In other words, evangelical Christianity is not just about getting people saved. It's about the incarnate life of Jesus being lived out today that others can experience the overflow of this best wine in the world. It's about God's kingdom come on earth. And that's what we're called to be. All I am is a clay jar. It's all you are. (laughs) But the wine of the kingdom is the best. I'm going to give you, I don't know what time it is. Yeah, I'm going to give you one last little illustration. And I'm going to finish in a moment. Uh, On my first trip to Australia, I went to see a blowhole south of uh, Sydney, along the coast there. And a blowhole is... Well, it looks like it's just a little hole in a rock, a little way inland from the sea. But underneath that little hole is a cavern. And the cavern is attached to the Pacific Ocean. And when the tide comes in, the, the, the sea fills that cavern. And when the next lot of water comes in, the water's got nowhere to go but up out of this little blowhole. And if you're standing beside that little blowhole, you discover that water that goes up has to come down as I discovered. (laughs) What you've got is the pressure of the Pacific Ocean being let loose through a little hole in the rock, and it's very impressive. Brothers and sisters, that's what happens when the Holy Spirit is let loose in our lives. We're not reliant upon our own resources, we're relying on the resources of heaven itself. We're not relying on just being a little hole, we are just little holes. We rely on God who lets his resources loose in us and through us and into the world. You know, hey, I'm a charismatic. I speak in tongues. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Occasionally God gives me a prophecy. I've seen people healed. Hallelujah. Amen. But one of the biggest disappointments in my life is when I've seen the charismatic movement turn in on itself and become just an excuse to sing hymns and raise hands in the air. And when we turn ourselves in and we think, well, what we've got to do is pray for one another and it would all be very nice and comfy cosy. That's not why the Holy Spirit was given. The Holy Spirit was given so the church could get on with the job of Jesus in the world and see his kingdom come. We want to see the resources of heaven let loose through you and me. That's what we're here for. Let's not accept a comfy, cozy church that makes it nice for each other. Jesus didn't, in fact, Jesus actually deliberately did not do miracles for himself. He did miracles for other people. You're called to make a difference but you can't because your resources aren't enough left to ourselves we end up humiliated we're left like that couple at Cana 
Will somebody please bring on the stone jars? <laughs> but let's see the wine turned into the best wine and let loose again in our country, in our towns. We need God to be at work. God gives the best. He doesn't give the dregs. And often he does that through you and me into the world. So don't settle for the dregs when Chateau Neuf du Pape is on offer. So let's pray for our nation with an expectation that we will obediently and humbly be part of the answer to allow the wine of God, the Holy Spirit, to flow through us. Are you filled to overflowing? Is the Holy Spirit able to release the resources of heaven through you into this dry, needy world? Someone who accepted that challenge in his day was called William Booth. He established what became known as the Salvation Army. Rather than wine or water, he used another powerful metaphor for the Holy Spirit, the cleansing, empowering flame. And in a minute, that's what you're going to sing. Oh God, a burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. Yeah? You're looking worried? Musicians? Yeah? You're not? I was told you were going to do that one. Okay. If you're not going to do it, you're not going to do it. Let me remind you the words, though. A God of burning, cleansing fire, flame, send the fire. That's the one. <laughs> and uh, can you bring us some of the words, then? Your blood-brought gift today we claim. Send the fire today. Look down and see this waiting host and send the promised Holy Ghost. We need another Pentecost. Send the fire today. That's our prayer. That's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for myself as well. It's our prayer for our nation that we will see the Holy Spirit working not only in the church but through the church and out into the world. That we'll see the wine of the Spirit transforming our society. Those who've gone before us changed this country and out of this country sent missionaries all over the world. But we as a country need that at the moment. May God hear that prayer. Let's pray. Oh God of burning, cleansing fire, flame, send the fire. Lord, you know us. You know whether we feel filled or empty. You know whether we've been filled with the wrong spirit, whether we've accepted something that is just not good enough. Lord, you know our need, but even more, you know the need of our country. You know the need of our neighbours and our roads and our streets. Lord, please, Hear our prayer for our nation and may we be part of the answer as we allow your spirits to work in us and through us. Amen. Amen. Amen.